Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly, and I'm happy to bring you part one of our conversation with Blaine Chocolate. Blaine and I recently sat down at Ballast Point Brewing Company in Daleville, Virginia, and had a great conversation. Uh, So great, in fact, we talked for almost two hours, so we've broken the interview into two parts so that you guys don't miss anything. Before we move on to the interview, just want to give a shout out to this episode's sponsor, the 20th Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival. The event will be held January 11th and 12th in Doswell, Virginia, and if you visit www.vaflyfishingfestival.org or our events page, you can get all the latest information on speakers, vendors, and classes. Now on to our interview. Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly, and we're lucky to be joined with Blaine Chocolate today. How's it going, Blaine? I'm good, man. How are you doing? I'm just trying to stay out of trouble. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to join me here at Ballast Point Brewing Company in Daleville, Virginia. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. It's been a while. Been trying to get this done for a minute. It's all good. You've been super busy. Um, Well, I ask all of my guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Well, I have have a couple, actually. You know, my grandfather revolves around both of those. Uh, You know, my brother and I, we're lucky to grow up, you know, within three or four miles of my grandfather. And, uh, he would always kind of take us under his wing and hang out with us when we were little and make sure we stayed out of trouble. But he had a big chunk of land in Botetourt County where I live now. And, you know, he had a pond, he had two ponds actually, uh, both full of brim and largemouth bass. He would take us to, and one had, one of the ponds had a lot of frogs in it. So, you know, he, kind of show us how to catch frogs and you know of course being a kid you're always that that was your main focus at that point trying to catch them you know and he'd always uh tell tell me because he had a lot of rabbits because he had it was a big fields he had and he always say man if you can we always wanted to catch the rabbits he goes well the best way to catch a rabbit is to put salt on his tail so <laughs> he would sit up there hanging out watching us in his hammock trying to catch rabbits and i'd get close and he'd always give us the salt and we're running around trying to figure this whole thing out and you know never did get that rabbit but he would always walk us down to those ponds and it, they were really clear because they were spring fed and you were able to see giant largemouth in them it wouldn't eat anything you know unless you had live bait uh but you know the first fish i ever caught was a bluegill and uh you know i remember it quite quite well i mean it was it was really cool i mean i fell in love with it immediately i mean he kept us out outside all the time and you know my dad was a big part of that as well i mean he had to work obviously and my grandfather was on the retired side of of everything when i was living when I, he was still living and uh he would always spend as much time with us as possible you know uh taking us to ball games and different things like that you know the other big uh, i guess the biggest part and biggest memory of fishing in my life is my grandfather and my dad taking me trout fishing for the first time. I mean, that's that's probably the thing that's gotten me where I am now. And it, it those are the fondest memories that I have with my dad and grandfather. And, you know, I, I, there's a lot of stories involved with that that, uh, you know, mean a lot to me and, and my dad. We were talking about that the other day. Yeah, I mean, that's how I started. I mean, I started fishing, you know, around Amherst County with my grandfather when I was a kid, too. And that's kind of how I'm still in the game today. If you want, I could tell you that story. You know, um, you, 
my parents property um my dad did pretty well for himself kind of like me didn't want to work for anybody you know he did that early on in life and it's like this is not what i want to do so he decided to get into the auto parts business and uh did pretty well with that for a while and um so he was able to buy some property um in the mountains um that bordered the blue ridge parkway and uh, national forest so we were able to grow up in the woods uh, on the side of a mountain um, with no one except the bears and the deer and all the other animals that that lived in our backyard pretty much and uh, that was about four or five miles from my granddad and opening day of trout season which we had back when i was growing up in virginia which we don't have now um, was a big deal it was always like the second or third weekend in march and I remember getting up early, you know, probably four or five o'clock in the morning. Um, my mom cooking breakfast for us and, uh, you know, my mom would cook breakfast. She'd also have the lunch stuff going and dad and I would park, you know, pack the car up and all. I was eight or nine years old at the time and we'd get going still dark, go pick up my granddad, show up at his place. And my grandmother would be cooking breakfast for everybody too. And, and her side of the lunch So we were definitely set on the, on the food and all that. So we'd all pile in the car with all the gear and, you know, the parkway was only about a mile, not even a mile, about a half a mile from my granddad. So we'd actually head back towards my house to, um, to get on the parkway. And, you know, once we get on the parkway, you know, my granddad would always be talking to, you know, about my dad and him growing up and, you know, all their adventures and hunting and fishing and stuff like that. And, and it was just amazing how, some of the things that really stick with you is, you know, as we'd get to the top of the peaks more about a halfway to our fishing destination, um, the sun would start coming up over the, over the mountains and you, you see that stuff and you see, you remember the stories that your grandfather's telling you about, you know, adventures that were getting ready to happen. And I'd never done any trout fishing before. So all that stuff stuck with me. And, you know, you just, you start seeing that, you have that, that light starting to come up and, and all that, and it stuck with me. And then obviously you get to the water and back then too, you have pretty much a shotgun start, you know, it, I think, I don't remember what time it was, maybe 10 or 11 o'clock. And we got there just to get our spot because people would stand in line. It's just kind of like they have in Pulaski, New York, where, you know, where it's just elbow to elbow. So we get it, we kind of get there super early before anybody else, right, right you know, maybe an hour before, right after the sun came up and a few people were kind of camping out and all that kind of stuff along the banks. And this happened to be North Creek and Jennings Creek, um, which is where I first started fly fishing too, which was the next year. But, you know, we got the, to the water, we'd kind of hang out, we'd get our spots and just kind of wait. And I remember the anticipation was un unbelievable. It's just like Christmas, you know, it's like, can I fish yet? Can I fish yet? Can I fish yet? And you could see the fish. You know, so for me, that was pretty, pretty, pretty tough to take when you're sitting there looking at trout swimming in the water and you can't do anything about it, you know, and, you know, and you have this pool to yourself and right as the time starts to come up, somebody on the other side comes up in the spot you're in, you know, so I'm like, man, at that point I knew that that didn't seem right. You know, you got all this water around and somebody's going to share the pool with you, you know, at an early age, I was like, man, I don't want to fish near anybody. And that's how I am today too. So that's the beginning of my first real fishing adventures with my dad and grandfather. And it's got me pretty much where I am now. I mean, I, that was an early eight years old, I think. And I, the next year I started fly fishing, even though we were using fly rods. 
Yeah, no, I can remember when I was a kid and started out, we were fishing with cane poles, right? And fishing for bait for trout, right? That was opening day for me yep. in like Nelson and Amherst County. So how did you get into kind of really get into fly fishing, right? I understand you were using it as a tool, but when did you really get that bug? Yeah, so my dad and grandfather both used fly rods and fly reels, but they were using monofilament on the fly, fly reels and just, you know, kind of using the, the long length of the fly rods to, to be able to dap the water, to get those drag free drifts. And, and that taught me a lot before I even knew what fly fishing was about that first year, how being able to take, whether it be power bait or, or corn or, or a worm or, or dead minnows and stuff like that, how fish would react adversely or positive to the way the fly or not the fly, but the lure or bait was presented to them. So I didn't know what was going on at that time, but I did figure out if I did this a certain way that I caught more fish. So I, um, that, I guess a couple days later, and it could have been a couple weeks later, I remember my mom taking this to, a, you know, obviously going to the grocery store and I believe it was a Kroger might've been a food line. Um, but they had a magazine section and I remember walking by the magazine section and seeing this guy with a holding a big trout with a fly rod in this bright line. And I was like, what's this? So I pick it up and start looking through it. And I asked my mom if she'd buy it for me. She did. Of course, they were always, always there for me as far as anything I was into. So I got that and started looking through it. And I was just totally uh, in awe of, of the flies and reading a little bit about what they're doing. But the size of the trout, obviously on the cover of the magazine is like, I want some of that, you know? So um, not knowing anything about fly fishing, but I knew we had the rods and stuff like that. It's kind of funny. Later on that day, we went up to my, gr my grandmother's on my mom's side and, uh, my grandfather passed away in a train, a train wreck. He was a conductor and there was, that's a long story, but, um, he was head, head on by another train, you know? Um, but that, that's a long story. But anyway, uh, he was a big angler too, and I, but I never got to meet him. He passed before I was born, but uh, my grandmother kept all his fishing tackle and then basically his his man room down in the basement. And I was just kind of rummaging through all that stuff, and I came across this this uh, line in in the in the basement, and it was bright yellow, very similar to uh, the lines I was seeing in the magazines, and it, it happened to be an old air cell scientific angler ad. And I was like, that, you know, that just looked cool because, you know, me being an artist, you know, colors, you know, stuff like that I'm attracted to. So I took that line home with me and put it on my fly reel. And I'm trying to whip this line through the air. And my dad gets home one day that night from work and he's looking at me. He's like, what are you doing? It's like, I'm trying to learn how to fly cast. He goes, well, he's laughing. He goes, first off, you got to get a fly line. And I'm like, hey, what do you mean? He goes, well, that's weed eater line. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, well, no wonder this is, I didn't know what that was either, but, but that, that was my first attempt at fly fishing. Um, so they, they knew at that point that I was really in, into it, into fishing in general, cause I was bugging them constantly to take me. But, uh, that winter, that Christmas, I got my first real fly fishing outfit, you know, and that following spring, they took me um, after opening day morning at lunchtime, my granddad promised he would take me up to the headwaters of those streams, which it happened to be North Creek to, uh, for me to try my first fly fishing deal with, with native brook trout up there. And uh, they also got me a fly tying kit for Christmas as well. And I tied a bunch of flies, not really knowing anything what, about what I was doing, but just messing around and reading the, 
the Orbis uh, index and, the, you know, that guy, that fly tying kit that I think everybody, a lot of people at that time started with, you know, Thompson A. Vice and, and all that. And that's where I started. Tied some Royal Wolves, which was incredibly hard. You know, I, I learned early at that time is, you know, materials are very important, you know, on what you do, especially as I fished them because they didn't float very well. So I, did, I knew I didn't have the right hackle after, you know, but I remember catching my first brook trout, but probably only five inches long, but it, it ate a dry fly, you know, and it was, it's just like, this is super cool. You know, I mean, it's beautiful. You, you couldn't, you couldn't paint a picture as pretty as a native brook trout in my mind. You yeah. Know? You know, and it's interesting too, because I mean, we were talking before we started recording, you know, we're not old, but we're not young. No. And right. I think, and I think what people don't understand, I guess, I don't know. I hate to say kids, but I'll say kids. You know, younger people in the sport today don't realize how hard it was to get materials and get information, you know, because you're talking about mid-70s, right? Mid to late 70s? Uh, 1982. Yeah. Actually, so, so, But, you know, it wasn't like there's a fly shop everywhere and you hopped on the internet and you could get, you know, genetic hackle from Tom Whiting no, shipped home. No. I was, I've been, you know, it's almost like I was destined, in my mind, destined to do what I do because there were so many things in in as we talk, you'll probably see that there's so there's been so many stair steps that were just kind of paved for me um, as I've kind of grown, not only as a person, but a, a, as a, a profession in the fishing industry. You know, that same year, Orvis opened up in downtown Rona. So I, somewhere, I think maybe it was 82, 83, I think they had they opened their first store in, in Rona. Um, and then shortly after, I think they I think part of that deal was they would open a big distribution center in Roanoke and which is still here today and, and that store is as well. So, um, it might've been later. I, I could be wrong, but it was within the t- first two or three years of me starting fly fishing. So, yeah, that certainly helps a lot. And so, you know, you've talked about fishing with family as you kind of progressed in the sport, who were some other people that mentored you and kind of helped you uh, become a better angler? Yeah. So moving forward and, um, when I was 15, um, I really, really was getting the bug, you know, in high school as a, uh, a, a freshman, um, you know, the Jackson river tailwater, um, became, came to be in the late eighties. Um, and they, they finally started releasing the cold water. I don't remember the time frame, but they, they started stocking trout fingerlings and then they opened it up as a special reg section right below the dam on all the way down to Covington, which was 18 miles of water. And, um, I found out about that by, like you said, there wasn't in hat, you know, back then there wasn't a lot of information out there. So the, where I would learn stuff is getting my mom to, you know, I'd drag her down to the Orvis store downtown Roanoke and you'd hear people talking, you'd have little photo albums going and, you know, I'd say, well, where do these fish call it? And they all this Jackson, you know, I'm like, well, where's that? And, you know, finally I taught my mom into driving me up there because my dad, you know, working all the time, wasn't able to do it as much as I'd like, but, you know, not saying he wasn't there for me because he was all, he was key coach pretty much every sport I played, which was all of them. Um, but you know, dad's got to do what they got to do. Right. But mom was there for me and, and, um, she drove me up to the Jackson river one Saturday, um, in the winter, happened to be in the winter. Um, and I was not knowing anything other than native brook trout. That was the biggest body of water I'd ever fly fished at the time. And, you know, I was kind of lost. And, and I, I remember fishing for a little bit. I think I'd caught one or two fish, nothing, nothing, probably over 12 inches. And there was two guys there and, uh, they were just 
catching fish after fish after fish. I mean, I, I guarantee they caught a hundred fish that day, no doubt about it. And I finally walked up to him, you know, being 15, it's like first guy was a younger one of the two. I was like, you know, um, what are you, what are you using? If you don't mind me asking, and he goes, well, I'll do something better for you. I'm not going to tell you what I'm using, but I'm going to give you some vials and I'm going to give you some alcohol and I'm going to give, I'm going to let you borrow this book. Um, and I, he goes, I see your mom's here and that's pretty cool. And I love the fact that you're really into it. And his, his name happened to be Steve Heiner and Steve wasn't a, he's retired now, but he was an aquatic entomologist at Virginia tech. And he, he didn't want to give me the answers, but he happened to be fishing with a very famous fly angler. And in my mind, one of the best fly designers that's ever lived and Harry Steves. And um, Harry's always been known, if anybody that's known him, has always been kind of a curmudgeon type of guy, but he's he's super intelligent. Um, he's an artist in all sorts of ways, not only in sculpting and, and painting, and but he's an incredible designer. And But Heiner has always been really into kids, you know, and, and he was always the guy that was always playing jokes and hanging out. And I mean, he was more approachable than Harry was. He Harry was always kind of the older guy that you know was quiet and got, would talk trash if when needed right but he was very intimidating but heiner gave me all those vials and he said just go check out these rocks and you go he goes pick out whatever you see and, and try to imitate that at the vice and he goes that that's kind of that's some of the best advice i can give you he said by giving you the answers you're not going to learn that much and i was like okay so i did that and it kind of that that's a whole story in itself, but that those Harry Steve and Steve Heiner have been probably my biggest mentors in a way because they got me started really, you know, um, we, you know, as you grow older, you lose touch, but, but, uh, those guys, they always will be, uh, somebody in my mind is someone that's really helped me as much as anybody. Yeah, that's interesting. And so is that really, you know, you, you get the vice when you're like eight or nine years old and you're tying along. Was that really kind of what jump-started your dive into fly tying? It is. And the fact that he gave me this book, um, it's McCafferty's Guide to Aquatic Entomology. And um, it's a college text. I mean, it's, you know, a huge book. I don't remember how many pages. I think I, uh, he asked me to give it back to him and I never did. Um, and he never, you know, whatever. But uh, we, we stayed friends for a long time. Um, but this book, um, this is a very important thing in, in my in my whole evolution as a fly designer in itself is when I, and you got to remember I was 15 at the time, and he gives me this book. I go and collect all these bugs, and it didn't take long when I picked up the first rock that there was a very prevalent bug on every rock, and not just one or two, I mean hundreds hundreds on every it didn't matter if it was a softball size rock or you know a rock the size of a, a basketball uh, there were thousands of these bugs on this rock right below the dam and it happened to be end up being a black fly larva and so uh, i obviously collecting these bugs and taking them home and starting to read about them looking at it not knowing what it was looking at it in the book i tried to match what i saw in the book and finally realized that this was what it was and so the, the great thing about this book is it, it talked about the, the, the scientific side of it, but it also gave fishing, and, and, um, I guess, not really anecdotes, but fishing advice. And, but the big thing about it, the scientific side of it, it talked about where they lived in the streams, their life cycles, and how they hatched and all this kind of stuff. And what I read was 
that these larvae, when disturbed by anything, would would release themselves from the rocks and and hold in the current by a silken thread and kind of drop back until they found a new place to live, right, or a safe place to be. But but by doing that, they're exposed to whatever in the currents. And this, I think this is a uh, later on reading about stuff like the I think the Miracle Mile on the um, was at the San Juan in Mexico that it's called the San Juan Shuffle. You're not allowed to fish right below your feet. But back then in this year, I'm, we're talking about late 80s at this point. You know, I didn't know anything about that. But so I'm reading about this stuff and the black fly larva suspended on a silken thread. And the black fly larva looks like basically a, a bowling pin. So I tied up some rudimentary black fly larva. The next thing I'm reading about in the, in the, in the book was that they, when they pupate, they pupate in this shuck that basically look like a squid. So, but they'll pupate inside this and then cut themselves out as an adult and then rise to the surface in an air bubble. Again, this is like in the late 80s. This is way before beads and any of that stuff became very popular. So, but at the time when I was in school, the girls were wearing all these glass, little tiny glass beads on, on, on pins. And they were wearing them in their hair. They were wearing them on shoes. They were wearing them on their t-shirts and all that kind of stuff. So we had a craft store in town and I got my mom to take me to the craft store and I bought all types of these little tiny glass beads from silver to pearl to black to um, abalone every type you could think of so I tied these extremely simple uh, beaded flies that had just a little bit of black dubbing gray or black thread or uh, gray dubbing or gray thread or whatever that I thought would look like a bug inside of a glass bead. So a lot of them, basically, I'd put the glass bead in the center of the hook and tied thread on both sides to kind of pinch it in between. And I was like, well, that looks like maybe a bug in, air, in a glass air bubble. So I tied a bunch of those. And the next weekend, my mom took me up to the river. Harry and Steve were there. And I started fishing. Next thing you know, I'm like catching fish like I'd never caught before. And I was like, wow, this, this stuff works. And what I was doing is I was taking that larva and then dropping about two feet behind the larva, dropping a, that emerger. And I would fish it upstream on a, on a uh, basically, I think back then it was those, those pinch-on uh, foam indicators, you know, a couple feet, four or five feet above the, the lead fly, putting the right shot on there and, and just letting it dead drift. And if I didn't get a fish then, I was letting it swing behind me because in my mind, you know, the thing's hanging and then it's emerging, right? And, you know, it was just remarkable how the fish reacted. And the, t- the week before, you got to remember, I maybe caught three or four fish all day long. And here, the first hour, I probably caught a dozen, at least, maybe more. And Hunter saw this and he comes up to me with Harry. And they're like, it looks like you figured something out. Let's see what you got going on. And so I opened up my box and both of them started laughing immediately. I'm like, what are you laughing at? It's like, I just started tying, you know, I'm not that good. I mean, I've been tying since I was nine, but I'm, you know, 15 at the time. It's like, so they opened up their box and it's pretty much the same stuff they were using. And they were like, thumbs up, you're into it. And we've been friends ever since, you know, and Harry Steves and I later on became business partners and, and, and friends for a very long time. And, you know, those, those guys really started not only my help my passion grow, but they, they taught me an early lesson that flies matter big time. Yeah. And, and that's been my goal because I'm always looking for that next 
thing that's going to make not only my fishing better, but people that I know or people that I don't know better. Yeah, that's awesome. And so you're 15. And so who are some other people along the journey that have influenced your tying? Oh, shoot, man. Uh, you know, again, you know, Harry being a big mentor of mine and, and a friend at an early age uh, got me to go to some fly fishing shows um, when I was, you know, out of school and just starting a fly shop. And he introduced me to uh, all the big names in the sport. You know, he introduced me to Ed Koch. He introduced me, you name it, man. The who's who of fly fishing. He introduced me to all those people, Lefty Cray, Bob Popovics, Bob Clouser, all and, and all those people, you know, all those guys took me under their wing because I was young and they knew that I was passionate about it. And obviously I had some, some, um, I guess, innovation, I guess that I had a little bit to bring to the table at the time and, and they saw that and they wanted to help cultivate it. And that, and that, and that's been, I think the greatest thing in our sport is the true greats want to help and share their knowledge. They don't want to act like, you know, jerks, like, you know, they're like any place in life there are, you have both. Right. But, uh, we're fortunate to have these amazing people that's really kind of helped me grow as an angler and a tire for sure. Yeah. And, yeah, it's funny because I always believe, you know, outdoors people are generous, but I think fly fishermen are generous in particular, and I think it's an interesting thing, too. Like, I always believe that, you know, when you share your passion, that gets reflected back to you. Oh, no doubt. And, um, you know, it really resonates. So so you're 15, you're moving along. When did you decide you wanted to be a fly fishing guide? About that same time, right then. Because, you know, Heiner, I, he to, I mean, he told me that he and Harry both would guide part-time, um, for Orvis, you know, they weren't, um, they didn't work for Orvis. Obviously Heiner was a, a entomologist at Virginia tech and Harry Steves was a biologist and, you know, he was, he's a brilliant, I mean, he's probably one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. Um, but so, but they would do it on the side, Heiner more than Harry. Cause you know, Harry didn't feel like he needed to do it or whatever. I mean, I think he, his patience level for some people weren't as, weren't as good as others, but you know, not, not saying that's a negative. I mean, that, that's what makes Harry so endearing, man. He's, he's, he's that guy and you know it. I mean, you, there's no holes, bar, you know, he's never going to be, he's not going to hold anything back. He's going to let you know what he thinks. And, you know, some people can't deal with that and he doesn't care. Right. Yeah. And that's what makes Harry, Harry. Yeah. But, uh, you know, for me having those people to help me get started and then introducing me to those other guys later on, I mean, it, it, it really made a big difference for sure. That's awesome. And I mean, and so you, you get into the guide thing, but you know, you also had a fly shop for a while, right? Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. So that, yeah, that's a whole, a whole nother thing. You know, when I, I started guiding my first guided trip, I was 16, about a year and a so later, I was 16 years old, year and a half later, 16 years old on the Jackson fishing and, and I'm doing pretty well, obviously because of Harry and Steve's and teaching me the black fly larva game. Um, and don't, don't, I want to make sure that I say this too, is I'm not trying to act like I, I created glass beads or any bead stuff. I mean, this just happened to be something that came to my mind and Harry and them, you know, did it. And then, uh, I think Theo Backlar popularized beads. Um, and I got to meet him too. So later on, well, much later on about five or six, eight years later. Uh, but you know, the whole guide thing for me, I was fishing that day on the Jackson. It happened to be a spring day. And I was catching fish pretty readily and, you know, just taking a break. And some, a gentleman 
came up to me and said, man, I, you guys, I noticed that you're doing pretty well. And he goes, you know, I've been struggling here. He goes, do you guide? And I'm like, I don't guide, but I, I really would like to do that. And he goes, how about if I become your first client? I'm like, absolutely. So he said, well, he goes, well, how about we meet up next weekend and you take me out? And I'm like, okay, we'll do it. So that was my first trip. And then later on, you know, I met Jim Finn, who was a, the original owner of Mossy Creek Fly Shop, who the Tros now own and have owned for a long time. But, but Jim, we created a pretty good relationship and he wasn't working the Jackson River and all that. So it worked for both of us. And, you know, I worked for him for a couple of years, you know, on and off while I was still in school, uh, high school at that time, because being 16 and, um, you know, when I was 18, 19 years old, you know, graduating high school, not knowing what I was going to do. I knew I did, you know, school wasn't my, my favorite thing in the world. So I didn't go off to school. I went to a local school, college, and just kind of trying to figure out what I really wanted to do, man. And my passion was fly fishing. I mean, I played a lot of golf and other sports, but fly fishing was it. You know, I just needed to figure out how to do it. And, you know, I knew guiding was an opportunity, but, um, you know, I just thought the next best step would be a fly shop. And at that point, you know, working with Jim, I wanted to make sure he understood that uh, I wasn't going to, you know, you know, go behind his back and do this. So I let him know up front that I was planning to open up a shop in Roanoke. And at this point, I think I was 22 and, you know, not knowing anything about business, you know, just having a passion for the sport. You know, I was terrible, terrible business person. <laughs> Still am today. Horrible. But uh, I started my fly shop at age 23. It took six, eight months to get it going. And, uh, you know, I never looked back from there. But, you know, 22, 23 years old when I really got into the business full time. Yeah. And how long did you have the shop? 15, 16 years. Wow. You know, yeah. So 2008 or 2009 is when I closed. Yeah. When the, a lot of stuff yeah. closed. Yeah. Let's say, like I said, man, there's a lot of things. If you look back in my life, that how things are kind of paved. I mean... Like I said, you know, guiding is always, and being on the water was my passion. And talking, fishing with people that would come into the store, the behind the scenes part I hated, you know, the, you know, the taxes and all that kind of stuff and making sure you're doing all these things. And that's like, that's not me. I got to get out of this. And, and I decided just to close it. But when you do that, not having a storefront, it becomes harder, um, to get clientele. Right. Uh, but at the same time, the internet became more popular and, you know, that helped out a lot, but I was still, you know, more of an angler had not, I had, you know, computers to me were foreign, even then still are in a way. Right. I'm, I can get by. That's about it. But, uh, yeah, I had friends that said, well, you know, if you do this and do that, you know, we can help you get clientele. It's amazing how anybody made it before the internet. Right. I mean, I was like, how the hell did I have a shop for that many years and was able to, to make it go without having, you know, social media or, or the Internet? You know, it's it's crazy, but we all seem to make it happen. But back then it was, you know, magazines that got you through and who, you know, and it's still that it's like who, you know, and they, the people that people really, you know, the cool thing about our industry is it's small. So it's a, you're able to network and they know people and they can tell people about you. And that's kind of for me, it's, I've never advertised ever, you know, it's always been, you know, pretty much word of mouth, you know, and it still is today. I mean, I have a website, but I never get on it. 
You know what I mean? So <laughs> I don't even know how to use the back pages to even put anything on there. So it's bad. <laughs> there, there you go. So it was really, you were kind of um, chomping at the bit to get back on the water full time as opposed to, you know, you were kind of, you you, lo- you had a passion, but the, the shop wasn't really working for you. So it was really made it easier for you and the downturn to basically say, I want to go back to the water all the time. Oh yeah, no doubt. I had a life event with a divorce too that, that really made it easier. But, you know, for me, um, guiding is where I was most comfortable and enjoyed because you know not only being on the water every day who doesn't want to be fishing every day right but you know i just i just didn't have the business sense either i mean we we made it but i I could have been so much more successful if i had a business mind and it just just didn't make sense to keep trying to to, because when i wasn't there i mean you build relationships with people and they people know that you know what you're talking about and they they want to buy from you so you buy you create these relationships but if i'm not there people didn't buy. So I'd be guiding four or five days a week and people would wait until I was back in the shop to buy the big rod or reel outfit that they wanted to get. And I was like, well, this is not making any sense. You know what I mean? It's like, how could you, you know, I'd have people and train them and, and, you know, but people didn't, they didn't want to buy from them. They wanted to make sure I knew that they were buying it for me or they want to talk to me face to face before they made that big of a purchase. And it just, it's like, I get it, but it's like, this, it's not working, you know? So made it easy. We had the crash in 2008 too. It was like, you know, this might be a good way to get out. You know, <laughs> so, so that's what I did, you know. Well, that, that's awesome. And, you know, and I've fished with you and, and I'm not just saying this because I'm interviewing you, but you have a very unique approach to guiding and fishing. And I don't think I've ever fished with anybody. And when I say that, cause I'm gonna ask you a question about like how you develop the approach, but I want to kind of, when I say that, what I mean is you are probably the most dialed in person on fish behavior in terms of where they are at a particular time and what they're eating of anybody that I've ever fished with or been around with on the water. And I'm really curious about how you develop that approach. Yeah, well, um, uh, you know, I, I would first say I'm, there's a lot of things I'm not good at, you know, uh, but, you know, God, I get, I guess that I've got this, this thing with, um, being able to understand, I think part of this has that artistic side of my brain, you know, like where I'm able to visually see things, whether I'm seeing it with my eyes or through my, my mind. And I, I just have this ability to be able to see one being on the water and watching how fish react adversely or positively to lures or flies and going, being on the water a lot also through the seasons and being in Virginia where we have a variety of different species of fish to target, whether it be super cold water trout or striped bass and landlock or the coast, um, having you know, native brook trout up in the mountains and the plunge pools and seeing how they react to different things and all the different seasons. We have four seasons here and fish change their behaviors through the seasons and be able to visually see that. But another, a, big prominent part of my business now is smallmouth bass and, and obviously muskie and, you know, muskie being the fish of 10,000 casts. I mean, I, I've learned a lot about what I know by not catching fish, you know, and, and you either quit or you figure it out. And I'm, I'm obviously being, I guess, known as a muskie guide, which I don't necessarily like that title at all. I mean, not that I don't love muskies. I just don't feel like that I'm a one horse pony. You know, I like, I like to think of myself as being diverse angler and, and that's what I want to be. Cause I feel like if you, you don't know a lot about everything that you're not that good, 
and and I, that's my goal is to get better every time I'm on the water. And I don't care if I'm fishing for bluegill or if I'm fishing for tarpon. You know, I, I want to learn about that fish. And I, I usually take a scientific approach about it is I'll, I'll first look at that biologic makeup of that fish, how they grow up, where they're born, and that whole journey through their life cycle. And, and, and as and Larry Dahlberg, he has a great quote on, on how fish react to certain things as a, why, you know, it's like a, a perfect example is one year ago, I mean, several years ago, we had on Smith Mountain Lake, we had a periodic cicada hatch and we had giant striped bass cruising the shoreline, sipping cicadas like a trout. And it's like, why would they take the time to eat a bug like that? That's a 20 plus pound fish. And, and at the time I'd never even heard of anybody catching striped bass on, on bugs. And I was talking to Larry about that and he goes, it's mother's milk. You know, these, all fish start off eating microorganisms and then moving on to bugs and then moving on to fish or fish species or crustaceans or whatever it may be. So it's like us, we never forget things that we grew up on. Right. So that stuck with me, but I mean, and I knew that without knowing it, right? Um, he, Larry has a way of explaining things because he thinks, I guess, I'm not saying I'm Larry, but I, uh, we have a, a kinship and we kind of think the way, I guess we're kind of geeked out on what we do. You know, I, I love, I mean, fishing's a giant part of my life, but the biggest thing that makes me tick is figuring out what makes them tick. You know, I, I really enjoy the puzzle and putting those pieces together. And, you know, like I said, you know, trying to catch muskies on a fly is not the smartest thing in the world, you know, especially to back yourself in a corner and try to do it for a, a living, you know, um, you know, especially with a fly rod. But, you know, and when I started doing that, there was not a whole lot there, you know, I'm not going to say I was the first person to catch muskies on a fly. I mean, Larry was doing it when he was nine, you know, and I think Larry's like 68, right? So he, he, he would be the one I would say that really kind of pioneered muskie on fly for sure. But it, it, it's, it's just it's learning how the fish react. And, 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 you know, like I said, what, what gets me more than the successful days are the days that we don't do well and not understanding why, you know, and, and that drives me crazy because you, you could feel like you know what you're doing, you know, six out of the seven days of the week. And you get that one day is like, why are they not eating today? Right? Or why, what are they doing that I know they're here? But why are they not eating what we're throwing? They were eating that yesterday and the days before that, right? So those are the days that make me want to figure it out. And all that goes back to Harry Stees and Steve Heiner when I was 15 years old, you know, seeing how the fish reacted to the bugs that they, they were using or what I tied after he pretty much told me what I needed to learn, right? So I do know that fish, they, they do not feed all the time, but they have to, they have to eat, right? So what is it that's causing them not to eat that day? That's what drives me. That's very cool. And I mean, growing up in Virginia, I understand, you know, fishing for trout, targeting smallmouth, and the availability of muskie, but you've branched out. I mean, there are tons of pictures of you on Instagram with all kinds of stuff and people call you to figure out how to catch fish in exotic locations. Where did the, you know, that desire to catch all, everything that basically swims come from? I, you know, I think, I think growing up here, having all this diverse water, um, and all the different species, you know, um, I love trout and I always will. I mean, that was my first real fly fishing experience. And I'll, every year I always like to go up and fish at least one day on a native brook trout stream, just to know that they're still there. Right. But 
you know, most of the flies I'm tying these days are, are bigger than the, the fish that we're catching in the mountains. And, you know, like I said, we're talking earlier about mentors and, you know, I've been super fortunate to meet people like Glepti and, and become friends with them and Flip Pallet and Larry Dahlberg and those two guys in particular, when I was in my late teens, early twenties, had those amazing shows that they had, the, uh, you know, the hunt for big fish and, you know, Flip show, which is probably one of the best shows that's ever been on TV period. Walker's K Chronicle. I mean, that showed me early on that there's so many different species of fish out there to catch, man. And they're all cool in their own way, even if they're not popular by the average person. To me, I thought it, it's like, I want to catch everything, you know, and, that, and there's a lot of people that I'm friends with in the industry that are into that. I mean, people, the one thing that I didn't love about trout fishing when I was, it's how people would get snobby about it. You know what I mean? And not, not saying that's a bad thing, but people would say, well, I'm not even going to fish a nymph because... You know, it's just dry fly only. I'm like, dude, why? You know, I mean, I get it. That's your thing. But I mean, I want to catch them. You know what I mean? So it, whatever it takes. And, you know, to have that, that kind of turned me off. So I, I, I just want to catch fish. I want to catch the biggest fish a lot of times. And there's always a progression in, in fishing in general. When people start, they want to catch a fish. And then they want to catch a lot of fish. And then they want to catch a big fish. And then they want to catch a lot of big fish. And then this is something that Larry taught me too then they want to catch fish the way they want to catch them. You know what I mean? And and I get that. And, but I mean, I'm kind of in all those all the time. Right. But, you know, I guess figuring out early on that there's all these different f- fish out there and I want to learn how they tick and I want to know what they eat. Right. By learning their biologic makeup, learning what types of forage that they, f- they feed on in their different life cycles as they get bigger. You know, I talk about this in my talks, uh, when I get that I give across the country is, you know, a brown trout, when it reaches 20 plus inches, it becomes a muskie. You know, that's why they become harder to catch because they don't have to eat all the time because they become that predator that they can eat when they want, not because they have to. So, and there's all these different things that you learn. And if you think about it, um, you know, we're all creatures of habit. It's just, it's a matter of figuring that out. And when I was guiding all the time and you would see these big fish. I don't care what it was, stripers, smallmouth, muskies. They're going to be in those spots all the time. And I could leave the area for 50 years and come back and there's going to be big fish in those spots. It's, it's amazing. And no matter where I go in the world, it's the same deal. You know, that's awesome. And we talked about this a little bit earlier, but you know, the fly is a really big part of kind of your fishing system and approach. And you talked a little bit about, you know, uh, being over on the Jackson, but how did that really get ingrained in the way you approach, uh, tackling fishing problems? Well, you know, with the whole, the whole bug deal, like the black fly larva, you know, that was the biggest start for me. It's like learning the different cycles of that. And then seeing how the fish reacted to them based on the dead drift versus the swing. Right. And then. You know, moving on to smallmouth bass after that, you know, I, I had to learn a whole different species and not knowing anything and not having a boat. I, you know, my first memories of doing that is when I got my, my driver's license, I would drive up to the James River in the summers and I would wade fish. I didn't know anything about bass on the fly at that point. I mean, Harry, Harry Murray up the road had his books out and stuff like that. So I read a little bit about it, but I mean, a lot of that was trout tactics for bass. And so I used a lot of that. And then, you know, I started kind of taking some of that and then 
just seeing how fish reacted to different things and, and knowing, you know, I started reading as much as I could about smallmouth and bass in particular and how they, and I noticed that smallmouth especially acted a lot like trout in the way they, they live. But as they got bigger, their habits changed, you know, and instead of finding a lot of fish in riffles, they, these bigger fish were lazy and they'd move into these deeper pools, you know, especially in the summer months. And, you know, I, I had to learn that. And, and that was an interesting thing in itself is, you know, a lot of people for smallmouth, especially so summertime in, in Virginia is a, a time for the fly angler to catch some of their biggest smallmouth. And it's always on top generally. And it's, it, these fish will selectively eat, uh, annual cicadas. And forever you, I was always wondering why these big bass we were catching on, on, on the tree lines, especially on bright days where you just plop a bug down and let it drift for, for a long time or, or not move it at all. And you could take your eyes off the bug and it'd be gone by just a little sip and it'd be the biggest bass you've ever caught in your life. So I was like trying to figure that whole thing out and then realizing that they're taking these as an insect, not as a, a minnow, which a lot of people would take a popper and pop it in the water. And our, our success was not that great by moving it. You know, so there's a lot of these like puzzles and piecing things together and figuring things out, God, but it's all about fish behavior and learning what they do in different times of the year. You know, it's like pre-spawn bass and, and figuring out where these big giant pre-spawn bass go in the spring before they get on their beds and before they even think about that. So it, all across the country, talked about this with Larry not too long ago up in Minnesota or even Wisconsin or Michigan, pre-spawn bass really they they've got to put the protein on. They need that extra energy because they're not going to be eating a lot when they're doing going through the motions of, of spawning and then protecting their beds and all that kind of stuff. So they're they're keying in on giant chubs. When I say giant, I mean seven, eight, nine inch chubs. I mean I've I've caught a number of twenty to twenty two, twenty three inch smallmouth that have a chub in its throat and still will eat a game changer that's seven, six, seven inches long. So you're matching the hatch there. And it's the same deal. I mean, there was a, uh, a film, I think I didn't get to see it, but they were talking about going back to that stripers and the cicadas, but there was this film, I think where they, they observed tarpon, giant tarpon feeding on locusts down in Mexico or somewhere, um, that I heard about. And again, it goes back to the mother's milk deal. So it's all about, it's all about learning behavior and fish will adapt to whatever food source is readily available to them. You know, but there's also these built-in biologic triggers that cause these fish to, to react to whatever lure or bait or fly that you're throwing at them. And that's the part that really gets me going. Well, folks, I hope you've enjoyed part one of our conversation with Blaine Chocolate. If so, it'd be great if you could give us a review in iTunes and subscribe in the podcatcher of your choice. The next part will drop in the next week or so. Tight lines, everybody.